Welcome to the podcast. I'm Joanna Colbert, and you're listening to The Casting Session. I decided to create this podcast out of a desire to help actors feel more confident in their audition. This podcast is an inside look at filmmaking through the perspective of casting. In these interviews, I'm going to provide you with in-depth, enlightening, fun conversations with the industry's top casting directors, actors, directors, and producers. We're going to cover a range of topics like the audition process and the role casting plays in the collaboration with directors and the overall craft of casting. Basically, we're giving you a behind the scenes look into the casting process. So without further ado, I bring you the casting session. Welcome to the Casting Session podcast. My guest today is Frank Karachi. Hi, very excited to be here. This is truly an honor. Frank, as you know, is the director of The Wedding Singer, The Waterboy Click, Here Comes the Boom. Frank is also a producer. And one of the other cool things about Frank for the purposes of the Casting Session podcast is Frank has also been in some of his films. <laughs> <laughs> so he knows your pain, actors. So, Frank, I'd love to start with the humble beginnings of Frank Karachi. I got to say that you mentioned the, the painful being of being an actor. I went to film school at NYU, and um, I actually took acting classes, not because I wanted to act, but I wanted to know what it's like to be on the receiving end and to go through that. And I got to say, it's helped me because I understand how much an actor is bearing their soul and how much they need to trust me and also how to comfort somebody when they're make them feel really relaxed and uninhibited to let it all out and let the most honest performance out. So that's sort of, as a director, what I always try to do to get some of the best performances out of my actors. And I've gotten to work with all levels of talent from new people to sports guys doing movies for the first time to some of the most amazingly talented Academy Award um, actors. So I've been really lucky. So when you're working with athletes, tell us what is, and first of all, that's fantastic that you make the effort to know how to break down an acting performance, but mostly to make an actor feel comfortable. I know that is probably greatly appreciated by this audience, but tell us about working with athletes and how do you get them where you need them to go? I mean, you find out, first of all, you know, the first thing when you get someone that's not a professional actor is like, they're going to lock up on camera. Are they going to be natural? So you first look at their personality. And a lot of times the people you're probably casting to be in a movie, um, Lawrence Taylor or a sports announcer, I had all the Waterboy. Um, you know, like some people, you know, have the natural charisma. And then it's like, OK, how do I get them to be themselves if that's who you want them to be? Or how do I get them to, you know, be a character? And um, yeah, it's a matter of a handhold. It's looking at what they've done before. I worked with Conor McGregor, and before I, it was a it was a comedy kind of branded content, and I had seen he'd never actually done performances in anything other than press stuff. And I thought, oh, he's really good on camera, but he's never even read script dialogue. And he got there and it was funny because I was like, I want you to be you and you're funny, you're naturally funny. And he literally didn't know how to say the first sentence. You know, he's like, how do I say this line? I'm like, it was a very basic line. Like, you know, how do I get on that horse or whatever? I realized I had to give him direction on every line. But his learning curve was like amazing because I, I also had John Lovitz in the thing and we were doing comedy takes. And I'd be like, do another one like this, John. Do another. And he's like, 
oh, he's like, you do a bunch, you get in a rhythm, kind of like fighting. Or I'm like, yeah, yeah, you get in a rhythm and then you get funnier. And by the end of the first day, the guy had an amazing learning curve. A lot of my movies have been that. A lot of different people like, you know, but like LT, Lawrence Taylor, who's a whole giant, right? That was great. He was just a natural, you know, he just let the camera roll and, and just, you know, as long as he has to be himself. And, you know, and then I got to work with people like Blake Shelton, who's a musician. That guy's just charisma oozing, you know, it's like he was just great and he knew how to be funny. And sometimes you have to explain why a line's funny and then they just get it, you know. We talk a lot about essence on the podcast. Just what is your essence? What makes you unique? Like even the greatest actors of all time, you know, Meryl Streep and Kate Blanchett, like they still have an essence, even if they're chameleons, right? So what is it? And you can spot it with these guys right away. What do you think it is? Like, how do we describe it? Well, I, I was thinking about doing this podcast and I was thinking about actors listening to this and I was thinking, and this is related so to essence. And, and, um, it's a weird thing because essence is uh, super important. But then the other thing we're casting somebody is having the right essence. Because I've read some really talented people that went on to become huge Academy Award winners. And when I didn't, I didn't cast them. And it was never because they didn't read it amazing and had my, I was captivated. But it's like their essence and the essence of the character are two different things. And yes, people can transform into something else. But it's just sometimes it's even physically who you are. I want people not to be discouraged that if you don't get a part, it's not necessarily because you're not good. If you get a bunch of callbacks and you don't get it, you usually didn't blow it. Your essence blew it. <laughs> it's like you just weren't the right type. And when I was doing Around the World in 80 Days, I'll tell you some of the people who read for the role, the French girls, it ultimately went to Cecile de France. But these are the people I passed and, and they made it to the finals. And I read them over and over. And like these are brilliant actors. Marianne Cotard, Sophie Marceau, Bernice Bejo. And uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg. I had all these amazing French actresses. And Charlotte was the only one that was already kind of famous. The other ones were really on the come. And uh, and I, I was like, it was so hard to cast that movie because I was like, I had this amazing, we wanted a French actress that nobody in America had known and was really like pulling hair out trying to decide. Ultimately, I don't regret it all. Cecile Cecile's amazing. And she had more of an animated kind of big eyes. And she was like a French Lucy ball. And obviously, you know, Marianne Cotard is not a French Lucy Ball, but one of my favorite French actors now, too. I really wanted to bring that story up to be like, never be discouraged you don't get the part. Maybe if you don't get a callback ever, that's probably a bad sign. Well, we like to say, don't just audition for the role, audition for the casting office. So that office will bring you back for other things, as you're saying, something that is the right essence, right? Right. Right. That's another thing I was thinking about. I was thinking about a lot for this podcast because I just loved, I've never gotten to talk about casting. And when you asked me, I was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to do. You're a great casting director. It'd be fun to share our stories. But um, I always tell actors, first of all, be really nice to your casting directors and always send a thank you. I go, because what happens is I'll be reading for a role and they want to put people in front of me that can read really well. And if you're on their list of like, this is a solid actress, I know she's going to break because I know she's really good. And she always, she always comes, she always delivers. It might not be exactly right, but it's always good. And I know how casting directors operate because they want to make sure I see people read it well, even if they don't seem like the right type. And a lot of times that person will come in, I'll fall in love with them as an actor and be like, oh, I got to find something for them. And it may not even be that movie or it may be another role in that movie. I go to my casting directors to put people in front of me that 
beyond that specific role, but that will help me in the future that are really talented. And nine out of 10 times, if there's that person they always bring in, they eventually break somewhere, if not with me, somebody else. And so I think it's that, that relationship. I love making movies, but I really enjoy the process of working with my casting. Usually it's more than one person in most of my cases. I work with um, Justine Arteta and uh, Kim Davis Wagner. I got to work with Avi Kaufman. She's unbelievable. I love that process because when you're in the casting stage, you're probably still working on the script. And and so in a weird way, it's you're part of the, the creation of the soul of the movie, you know, and it's like you're bringing people in front of me. You're reading with them. Your read is super important, by the way. How much you give them is how much they can give back and give a real performance. But I'm constantly seeing my scenes sometimes different than I heard them in my head. And I'm like, wow, that's and, and so it's it's a whole evolving creative process making a movie. And I love that the casting director or directors are a part of that because they're bringing actors in front of me and 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 we're re even rewriting the script based on our casting sessions. And so for me, it's a workshop, you know, so it's a pretty amazing experience for me. It's the first key department head that you hire, right? So you have all this delicious time together and even it's affecting the writing. So audience, that's an amazing thing that Frank just said. It's affecting the writing of the script. So the casting director is actually helping shape the movie in those early stages. And Frank is one of those awesome directors who has an openness to that process and loves to be collaborative. And that's a time where your production designer and your costumer are not bugging you because you haven't hired them yet. <laughs> exactly. You're almost in a bubble where nobody bothers you. And then you get to watch back the recordings you did with these actors and, and, and then it either resonates or it doesn't. I mean, usually what you feel in the room is usually accurate. The other weird thing is, though, you can't just go by tape because I feel like tape is tape and tape is not, especially if you're making movies for, I'm, I'm a movie maker, right? So I, a TV, I can't say exactly the same, but for movies, you're watching a movie on a giant screen, right? So the equal isn't watching it on a little video screen. The equal is being in the room with their face giant in front of you and feeling their energy. To me, it's close to a movie screen. So I love the process that you guys weed it down. You go, these are the people I like. And I'm like, great, great, great. That person probably not worth it. That's a great director session. And I love, I look, I so look forward to those sessions. And especially when you have a casting director you trust because you feel like, oh, she's combing everyone. She's not going to miss the beat. And we're going to find somebody great for this role. Yeah, that whole process is just magic to me. So that magic is really a real thing. Like, why we keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> exactly. But you guys keep me cool. You know who's up and coming, who's this, who's the talent nobody knows about yet, who's somebody you saw on some TV show or they happen to audition for you. I mean, that's, that's it's I, I rely on you guys to keep me cool. I'd love to um, go back in time a little bit and talk about Murdered Innocence. Is that literally your very first film? It was my first feature film, yeah. Yeah, I was 24, 25. And um, it's funny, the story, I bumped into a producer-actor at a video store, and he, I had an attractive girlfriend, and he was hitting on my girlfriend at a blockbuster. <laughs> and I come around the aisle, I'm like, who's this fucking asshole hitting on me? And, uh, and he's like, oh, I'm a filmmaker, and uh, you know, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, I'm a filmmaker too. He's like, you are? He's like, you got a reel? I go, yeah, I got a reel. And at the time, I had... A bunch of stuff I did with Sandler because we went to NYU together and I had a bunch of short films with him and I had a bunch of different stuff I had directed. And I so I give him my reel. And I look him up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy made some kind of not great movies, but OK. And then he called me up. He goes, I'm going to send you a script. It's like we have like two weeks to shoot it. 
can get you you want to direct it and i'm like let me read it and then i read it and it was like not the best script in the world it was like a very police script and i'm like jesus this is my chance at 24 25 to direct a feature film this is like 1990 93 94 and uh i read it and i was like how can i make this good i called one of my buddies at nyu and i said what do you think and he's like let's rewrite it into a film noir and the one caveat was the guy who was producing it had to be the lead actor and and he he was like you know he had abilities he wasn't a a, a full-fledged great actor and we're like, let's make it a film noir. He has to be very breathy. And, you know, and at some point he explodes. And I'm like, we sort of catered the film around, you know, his level of skill at the time. And um, we pulled it off. It was funny, but the casting was like, I also had to ha- hire, like, the bad guy had to be the special effects guy. It was a loaded cast. I got some great talent. I got Jason Miller. You remember him? He was the um, priest in the exorcist. He was Academy Award nominated. He also won a Pulitzer for that championship season. He was amazing. I had to cast his buddy and his theater troupe who was good as one of the cops and like the local lotto number girl that was his friend <laughs> so the cast is so eclectic and i kind of leaned into what i was like at the time i was really influenced by blue velvet so i'm like oh i'm gonna make this kind of weirdly can I, I just took what i had and i kind of made this really strange fun kind of dark twisted movie it was i, I was like that's the direction i want to go i want to make weird david lynch-esque movies when i started so when you said you had to cast this one and this one and this one, is that just out of because you had no money or? No, no. The producer, that was his sort of like, listen, we'll get, we got Jason, but Jason's like, wants us to make sure we hire these two people. And the visual effects guy, I have to give him a role because he's going to do all the squibs for free. Well, he was really good, by the way. I'm blanking on his name. It's been so many years. I mean, I kind of made the best of everything. It was a really campy, weird movie. If you're intelligent, you kind of know what you have in the arena. And to me, the director's job is tone. I mean, that's really where the difference of great movies are, I think. Because, you know, the reason Quentin Tarantino is famous is he kind of makes violence and comedy in a way that nobody had done it before, you know. And that's why his movies really stand out. So once you get clear on your tone, you feel you can be off to the races. Yeah. I mean, at this point in my career, you know when you're making the script the tone you want to make. Um, That was my learning experience, but I had the instincts then to know, okay, I got a loaded deck here of talent. That's all. Because Jason Miller was Academy Award caliber guy, you know, and he was the anchor of the movie. It was fun to to do that. Yeah, I mean, this other girl, Jacqueline Macario, was so good as the lead. And uh, she hasn't, I always look up and she hasn't acted. I'm like, oh man, she was so good. But it's funny how people could be great. There's so many talented actors, though. It's a it's a tough biz. You got to devote your life to it. Well, Jacqueline, if you're listening, come back to us. So what about back in NYU for any student filmmakers out there? What is the process of casting student films? Must be challenging. It's funny. I had an instinct to cast my friends, but then I also was like, oh, I want to cast actors I don't know to get used to working. So I kind of had a combination of my student films. I'd worked with Sandler and my buddies. And then I would also go out to the, you know, and put an ad, I don't even know if it's still a thing backstage. I don't know, that was the magazine. And, and um, you know, the audition process, you know, it's funny. You get the headshots then, and, you know, and I was like, this student film, like, oh my God, actors really want to be in my short film. I had um, Sandra Bullock. And I remember I couldn't wait for the audition because her, her, her headshot, I was like enamored by. And I remember um, she couldn't, she kept trying to make the audition, but she was a waitress at a, at a restaurant called Canistel's in New York in the 90s. And she couldn't get off work because she was so bummed. And I always thought, it's funny, and Adam was almost in that film. So I almost had a student film with Sandler and Sandra Bullock in uh, 
1988. <laughs> Maybe I've eventually worked with Sandra Bullock. <laughs> Sandra, let's let's make that happen. So you do have films from NYU with Adam Sandler? Yeah, I I, I even try, I was trying to, like, my parents had in their attic some of them, and I haven't transferred them all. I'm like, I gotta buy out them. They're, like, probably, you know, amazingly uh, funny to see it. Although we probably wouldn't want them out. I'm sure they're not good. We were learning. Exactly. So we talk a lot about essence and we talk about your openness. So does your openness include if a casting director comes to you and says, listen, I know this is written for a male, but would you be open to it being female or would you be open to a a role that's written on the page a certain way being cast differently? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, that's what I hope as a filmmaker have all these super talented artistic people around me and I look for different point of views and you know the buck stops at me I love that or the studio sometimes which isn't always as fun but um I love getting the most out of everyone around me and 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 I'm open to all ideas like that yeah yeah for sure when we were casting around the world in 80 days we were trying to go for a big Phileas Fogg and it's funny these are the people I suggested that got shot down and this is before I, I was like I think we should put Johnny Depp because in a family film. And they're like, Johnny Depp in a family film? And that summer he came out in, in Pirates. And then I'm like, all right, well, if not him for Philly's Fog, how about um, Robert Downey Jr.? I'm like, I know he's in trouble. It was when he was going to. And they're like, we can't insure him. I'm like, there's got to be a way. No, you know. And then we ended up um, casting Jackie Chan, which was really cool. And so my casting director, um, I think it was, it was A.B. Kaufman, was like, I was like, let's, get, I want somebody cool as, you know, we don't need a big name for, so let's find somebody cool. And she was like, go see uh, 24 hour party people. And I fell in love with Steve Coogan from that movie. And I'm like, he's the perfect Phileas Fogg. He's funny, you know, he's British. So he's not funny in an obvious way. And he always looks like his wheels are turned. There's an essence thing, right? I had a lot of great British actors up for it, but he looked like a genius. I could believe his brain was ticking. And there was other people that read the part amazingly well. But when I saw just his essence, he was like the perfect uh, Phileas Fogg for me. So that's a perfect example of A.V. Kaufman coming to you with something you hadn't thought of or maybe not even known the actor too well or at all. Yeah, barely knew him. I think I heard the movie was good. And then, and by the way, I love that movie. I love that director. Um, Michael Winnebond has seen all his movies since. But yeah, yeah, that was a perfect example of of a casting director putting somebody in front of me and, and me going, that's the one. She was great. I mean, we got Jim Broadbent in that movie. I had already known Kathy Bates, so I got her. I mean, what a stellar cast that we got to play with. But a lot of the British actors I wasn't as familiar with. Ian McNeese, um, uh, Adam Godley. It's funny, all of them, a lot of the people I worked with, I love seeing them pop now. He's on um, The Great, and he's so amazing. And he's been a bunch of stuff, Adam Godley. But he was such a solid actor, you know, and it's like and it's not like he's this like super handsome guy. And you're like, I know that guy's going to make it, you know, and he and he and he did, you know, he's always had a great career. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, yeah, if I would have never been able to catch and you and Bremner, I knew the minute she said the guy from uh, Train Spotting that stutters. He was in my movie. He was perfect, though. Like, I don't know if I didn't have her, if I would have thought of you and Bremner, even though I already knew who he was. But yeah, so she really was outstanding. So, Frank, you're one of the great comedy directors. And so let's talk about comedy chops for a minute. For an example, very few people know that Eric Bana started in a comedy variety show. So have there been any great surprises for you 
Yeah. Um, so um, we were casting um, Ridiculous Six. And I mean, it's it's Rob Schneider, it's Adam Sandler, uh, Luke Wilson, who had, it didn't have to be overly funny, but we had a really comedic role in the dumb brother, Little Pete. And uh, I was, Sandler had a, a holiday show and I had seen Taylor Lautner in uh, one of his grown-up movies. He was not necessarily overly funny. And I'm just looking at this kid. And I'm like, if that guy could be funny, it's going to be the best. Because he has to shed his ego. He has to have buck teeth. You know, he has to have a, fa a farmer, f bunking kind of dumb guy. I'm like, it'll be so hilarious. And we hung out. And he didn't officially audition. But we hung out and talked about the part and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, Sandler, he's definitely. And, he's, and Sandler loved him from working with him before. And when we were shooting, his comedic instincts, it's it's like, comedians are the toughest on comedians and it's like it's like you cannot say a hacky joke without like one one bad joke and you're like you're like you gotta go a long way to earn it back and i couldn't believe that taylor didn't have this you know stand-up comedy background he would improvise stuff that was the funniest stuff and he always had such good taste and Literally everybody on the cast, we gave him MVP for the funniest no. person. And he's not even a com comedy background guy. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it really, really was. I can't wait to do something. He's such a, an amazing actor, amazing person. And I can't wait to do something. And he shed his ego. I mean, this guy's, you know, sex symbol in Twilight and he has buck teeth. And, you know, some people, some people are like, I can't believe you did that, though. I'm like, no, it's to me, it's brilliant that he did that. And, so yeah, he's funny on a TV show. I did see his TV show. Um, he did for I think it's BBC. It was called Cuckoo, and uh, and he he played like a new he played like a kid that was brought up in like a new age cult, and he committed so hard to it. That was part of what also gave him the confidence to go. Oh, he knows how to be funny, I think. And then yeah, he killed it, and that was the biggest surprise I think in my career that somebody could. I mean, it's like you hope people could be a little funny, but he was the funniest. Uh, you know, against the best. Love that. So, so yeah, a big part yeah. of that, as you're saying, is willing to be self-effacing, willing to be vulnerable, make fun of yourself, not take yourself too seriously. Yes, a hundred percent. And listen, at the end of the day, comedy smarts. Yeah. You know, it's you got to be smart. I I was always reluctant to do comedy, and then wanted to do like those dark, weird, artsy movies, and then. I was doing comedies. And I was a little down on myself, and one day I was looking at my dog, and I would think I was stoned. And I'm like, man, my dog can be happy, he can be sad, he can be scared, he can be angry. I'm like, but I always try to make him laugh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, so who can laugh? And I'm like, besides humans, I'm like, kind of monkeys and dolphins. I'm like, I'm like, okay, I felt better about making comedies. I'm like, you actually have to have intelligence and the, there's so much more subtlety in comedy. And, you know, irony, my dog definitely doesn't get irony. <laughs> there's also a weird thing with comedy that you can't it gets so obscure like the great i love working with coog i love with sandler in one way because we're just funny naturally with each other and then coogan i can analyze with him he's really analytic like me and we can be like do a half a beat pause before that where we can analyze why something's funny uh. um so it's funny every comedian is totally different some are just instincts um but going back to that and uninhibited in college, there was an acting exercise that we used to do when we were just hanging out getting stoned. And it was called, we called it Schnorf. And it's like, you get a rhythm going and one person makes a noise that's the most uninhibited noise. Like, hoo -hoo -hoo! and then everybody copies it. And in rhythm, you go around in a circle 
and everyone does the noise and you, the more uninhibited, the more like you show yourself, the more, and you would laugh, but you would do it. And I actually have on a lot of my movies have done with my main cast, like right before the first day, I'm like, let's do a snore or in the middle of a tense scene. I'm like, let's all snore. And we snore. I did. I think I did it with Jackie Chan and, and Steve Coogan and Cecilia Brown. And, and I've done with Sandler for years. And it's just so funny how it opens up that, wow. that, that expression and that meter and that thing that holds you back because you're just so, yeah. And then you bond. It's I feel like that bonding with your actors in that space is good because then they're performing in a way for the director, performing for the camera, but they're performing for me. And I'm so receptive to them and I'm giving them feedback. Getting that trust is the most important thing I can do for an actor. I love Schnorf. That is fantastic. I was watching the uh, George Balanchine documentary last night and Balanchine's thing that he always said to the ballerinas was don't think. And so I guess there's an aspect of that too, right? And amongst the actors, they just took their shields down in front of each other. So suddenly you're acting with this person and you already have these connections going, you know, and if you're a good actor, you had to take the personal connection that you just had with the character and, you know, make the magic. So leave your thinking at the door, actors. Bear your soul and enjoy it. <laughs> so, Frank, is there an audition story that you might want to share? One audition that comes to mind is um, on Zookeeper, I read so... I don't even want to say the level of people that read for that role. It's sometimes funny how, like, I'll have, like, A-list actors reading. I'm like, I can't believe they're reading for a role, you know? I'm not going to say names in that, except for the person who got the part, but... um. Leslie Bibb came in on Zookeeper and, and there were so many great people. I don't want to discount anyone else. If you're listening, actors, you were all great. And again, it was an essence thing, but she came in and the way she read it, like this crazy psychotic girl, it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. It's a scene where um, Kevin James is um, proposing to her on the beach and she's totally grossed out that she would be, you know, he's a zookeeper and she would never marry a zookeeper. And it was just a really funny scene, but she just did it and like, ew! She just came at it from like a different crazy angle. And I'm like, oh my God, that is so funnier than, the page was funny, but this is like a whole nother level of funny. So my suggestion to actors is read it the way you think it's supposed to be. And by the way, the choices you make are part of why I picked somebody, just even if they get it. Like sometimes people read it totally wrong. Like that was wrong, but bad. But then people will read it totally different and it's so right it's more right than i thought it could be so i would say as a general rule and i never like to make rules but read it the way you think it should be read and i'll be like hey let me can i try one a little different i think that's a really smart approach because if you show you can understand how something's written from the, in an intelligent way but then you can come in with a whole new angle you know if you're really ballsy you just do your own way <laughs> so where do you stand on memorization on um, auditions i don't care I want people to be as comfortable as they can be. So if it's like we're down to like the finals and I'm having them relieved with the lead actor, if they can't remember the lines for that, more important to me is I want them to be as comfortable as possible. I'm a notes guy. When I go to a meeting to sell myself for a movie, I type out everything I'm going to say. I hardly ever look at it. But the fact I have a, a security blanket so I can relate. At the end of the day, I literally just, I don't care if they're off book. I want them to just perform the best way. I try to make them, I want my casting directors and me to make them as comfortable. I'm super warm. I'm like, I'm trying to see what they can give me. You know, I'm not trying to make them feel uh, awkward or under the gun or, you know, if they're good enough, they're going to be under enough stress when they have to read with the lead actor. If they're, at a, you know, a, a lower level, that's going to be in a fresher loan, you know, because that, that's the one thing. It's funny. I, I was casting for Sinbad 
we're trying to find an Arabic actor and, and we were really you know, looking under every stone. And um, there's some people are like, they're really good, but what happens on the day? Like when they're up against, you know, you name it, whoever it is, I'm like, are they going to just choke? And so, you know, I, I didn't get that far because the movie got um, paused for the pandemic, but I would have put them next to a big actor to see how they held up. By the way, I'm biased to people who do a lot of theater. Because to me, I'm like, okay, they want to act so bad that when they're not doing movies or TV, they're acting. So that that goes a long way. If it's if it's tiebreaker, I'll take the person who's done theater because I know they'll know how to memorize and be prepared, and, and it's a lot of um, responsibility doing and you know to do a show. So as I just think the whole thing's fascinating. People do theater. That's fantastic. That's really interesting. So you've probably well, if you worked with Avi, you probably cast full films in New York City. That's a whole other experience than casting. New York is great. Yeah. 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 LA, New York, and London. There's no no place better. I mean they're all I mean they all have something different to offer. Um but New York is solid. You know. Yeah. Is there anything you can um point to that makes a, a casting uh director office different in London than LA or New York specifically? I mostly worked with an American casting director in almost every case, but on Sinbad, I worked with a British team and it was, it was very similar. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the taste of the people and who they put in front of you is huge. Their relationships are a lot too. If, if, if they're liked by agents and people and, you know, it's like those relationships help when you need to like make things happen. But um, more importantly to me is good reputation and have people that read with actors really well and give it their all and usually it's one of the two people on the team that loves doing that so that's super important all right here's my only pet peeve and sometimes i actually bring my own mic there's this weird thing where everybody like uses the mic on the camera and it's always like you hear the off-camera lines louder than the on and i'm like get a real mic you can attach that to an iphone and it's like because to me I have to take that audition that I did with an actor and I have to sometimes sell it up the river to the studio or whatever, the other star. And I'm like, I want the best foot forward. And so like that mic is like, it's such an easy thing to do and nobody does it. Lastly, here we are in a pandemic. Well, hopefully not in one for much longer, but we are still in the self-tape O-Rama do you think we'll get back to being in, in the rooms with actors? And, and also, what are you feeling about the self-tape? I think self-tape is amazing because on Sinbad, I had actors from Turkey, from all around the world sending tapes in, and you can kind of weed it down, you know? And then I've had Zoom casting sessions. Yeah. And it's pretty good. I mean, I, I think when you're doing an international casting, it's really good. But I think just in general, there's no excuse not to have a great take. You know, and, and it's okay if you have a flub. It doesn't have to be a perfect take, but do friggin' as many takes until you feel like you nailed it. Not, and again, a flub isn't the thing. It's that you kind of nail the general performance and you feel good about it. I'm a loose casting director in the sense that I, I think it's a lot of, of what you're saying. It's like, I like to see the unpolished version. I don't like memorization. I don't like it to seem like you're auditioning for a commercial where it's so polished. I like to see this sort of little bit of rawness. Uh, I know there's casting directors who have a lot of rules, like it has to be this many minutes and it can only be one take. But I also sort of say something along the lines, you're saying like, Okay, show us that first kind of raw take. And then the second thing is the one that's really polished that you've had all that time to have a perfect take. 
Yeah, yeah. Definitely give choices. Like definitely make choices. So so there's a little different reading because you might interpret it not right and you might get it better with your own instincts than if you do it the way you think you're supposed to do it. But definitely give some choices. Don't do two takes that are exactly the same. But I'm a fan of self-taping. I think it gives a better actor a better shot. And we have so many portals now that we didn't have before. Um, yeah. As you're playing yeah. international. I still go back sometimes from, because uh, I don't even, on a movie, I'll be like, I read somebody on that other movie. I'll go back to the, you know, one of those websites that you guys put them up on. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And I'll like, oh, yeah. And it brings me back. And I'm like, but yeah, you see, she's great at that. Like, let's bring her in for this movie. So actors, you've heard it now from Frank Karachi. He is going to remember you for something else. If you didn't have the essence for the one, he's going to be making many, many more movies. We have now come to the ritual portion of the podcast. And uh, I like to ask my guests about their coffee or tea rituals. Will you tell us about yours? Well, funny you should ask. I am an espresso guy. I'm an Italian guy from New York and um, nothing gets the juices flowing like a nice Nespresso. I'm, I'm good for one right when I wake up, especially when I'm doing something creative or writing. I need my little, my little dose. I tend to go straight up. I used to do sugar, but I've been keto, so no sugar. Um, and occasionally I'll have a macchiato, but mostly I eat straight up espresso. Um, I am an espresso machine. When I'm on set on a movie, I have a machine everywhere. And I usually juice up my whole crew. I bet they appreciate that. They appreciate it. Nothing like giving people espresso when you're working the late hours. I can also drink espresso right before bed. I'm one of those people that people, how do you do that? I'm like, I can sleep on anything. So Okay, so you'll wake up in the morning and will that be the absolute first thing you do? First thing I have. That Nespresso gets me good for my phone calls and everything I have to do in the morning. And I'll probably do a couple during the day. So I probably do three a day is probably my, my mean. Okay. And when do you know you'll need one in the evening or want one in the evening? I will probably do one after dinner because I get sleepy after dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes if I have a lot going on, one in the afternoon. I always think about it. It's funny. I always think how um, apparently there used to be cocaine and Coca-Cola or something like that. And people were addicted to soda shops. Yeah. So I always have this fear that in the future we'll be like, they used to have coffee was you could drink it legally and they would have shops on every corner and 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 can you believe that and i'm like i hope they never do that the coffee because it feels like the one kind of drug that's not really bad for you but i do love tea now and then but not like i need my espresso they're two different categories to me okay so when you do opt for tea what will you do what type of tea will you have i'm a big fan well when i'm sick i do lemon zinger that's my favorite but generally I love just fresh mint leaves. And um, when I'm with people that are into green tea, it's fascinating to me. I just, once in a while, I'll go there. But I I do appreciate people that are like green tea experts because it really is like, there's a whole thing with that. Yeah. When you opt for a macchiato, what type of milk? Lactate milk. (laughs) (laughs) Just to expose my tolerance to, yeah, yeah. I just like whole milk lactate because, you know, they let me expose myself. So there you go. All right, Frank, we appreciate you telling us about your ritual. Uh, It's a very, uh, my favorite part of the podcast. Well, Frank, I love geeking out on the audition process with you. I hope we get to do something soon. Wink, wink. (laughs) (laughs) Wink, wink. So everybody take all of this gold and thank you so, so much, Frank. You got it. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. I hope you found the episode enlightening. 
It's really my true desire to share a unique perspective on the casting process and help you feel more confident and inspired. The podcast is available on Anchor and Spotify. For new episode updates, you can follow the show on Instagram at The Casting Session. Please feel free to share this with your friends and write a review. And tune in next week for more behind-the-scenes gold. I'm Joanna Colbert, and I'll see you at the next casting session.